Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we do a deep dive on tanks, discuss Biden's speech in Warsaw, and we interview the UK Shadow Secretary for Defence, Labour MP John Healy. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of February, day 364. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Weekend Foreign Editor Vinnie Sharoni, Foreign Correspondent Colin Freeman, Defence Editor Danny Sheridan, and our guest is John Healy, Labour's Shadow Secretary for Defence. I started by asking Venetia for the latest updates from Ukraine and around the world. So I'm going to start us off in Russia, in Moscow to be precise, because... We have got a massive rally underway um, that Putin is expected to speak at later today. We don't know if it's specifically to mark the one year invasion, one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, but the timing is obviously fairly suspicious. The actual anniversary is on Friday. Putin isn't there yet. A massive nationalist rally of the kind that we saw last year with lots of performers in various traditional dress from across Russia, you know, a band of accordion players with Z caps, incredibly colourful, lots of fireworks thousands of people waving Russian flags. So a real sort of moment of nationalist fervor in Russia. We're, we're waiting to see what Putin is going to say, but he'll be probably pressing the same lines around no regret of the Ukraine invasion, Russia will win, etc., etc. Um, where Putin is at the moment is he's been meeting with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi. Wang Yi was in um, Russia yesterday. He met with Sergei Lavrov. He's been doing the rounds, consolidating the Russian-Chinese relationship. We've had lots of comments from both sides saying that the relationship is reaching new heights, that cooperation is better than ever, that trade will increase this year, um, and that the relationship is one that can stabilise the world. That's what Putin said today. 
um, quite a lot of bluster, but obviously this is a key geopolitical relationship to keep an eye on, one that we've seen certainly growing closer over the past year. Um, you know, despite the, the complexities of China, um, for China about the Ukraine war and the sort of difficult position that it potentially put it in, China has not ever come out and explicitly condemned Russia. It's almost certainly working with it on providing arms and other sort of technical support. And that personal relationship, as we can see, is continuing to grow closer. We are expecting Xi Jinping to visit Russia at some point this year. Vladimir Putin alluded to that when he said he's looking forward to meeting Xi. Um, <clears throat> some other bits to flag a bit more Ukraine-based. Um, we heard a report today that Russia tried and failed to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile on Monday while Biden was in Ukraine. And this is its Satan-2 missile. That's the nickname that the West give to the Samamat missile system. Um, it did successfully test launch it last year. Um, it's a nuclear-capable missile, but it apparently failed on Monday, which is quite amusing. Um, and one other story to quickly flag is that Wagner Group's chief, Yevedny Prigozhin, has been at it again, talking about the lack of ammo that his group are facing. Wagner, you'll remember, are fighting on the front line in Bakhmut and other areas of eastern Ukraine. They're pretty much Russia's best hope for frontline gains at the moment. They seem to be, you know, um, leading the charge the most anyway. We did see a post last week. This might feel like a familiar story to some listeners. We saw a post last week from the Wagner Group in general. They posted a quite gruesome picture of a room filled with dead bodies. And um, Prigozhin later spoke about the lack of ammo. But he's posted another picture and specifically commented on it, saying all these people died from ammunition hunger, he called it. Um, ammo shortages have been a problem for both the Ukrainians and the Russians. Obviously, the Ukrainians are relying on the West to bolster their supplies of both bullets, shells, all kinds of ammo. Um, but Russia doesn't have that many other partners to rely on and is having to sort of amp up its own industrial capabilities. And the Wagner Group has been very, very vocal. Prigozhin's been incredibly vocal about the, the lack of ammo that his group are facing and how it's um, causing lots of high casualty rate in Russia. Well, thank you very much, uh, Venetia. You've touched on a lot of things there. Could we just ask you to go into a little bit more detail about uh, Biden's speech, President Joe Biden's speech in, in uh, Poland yesterday? Uh, this actually happened after the podcast we recorded, so we didn't get a chance to speak about it, but it was huge news uh, yesterday afternoon and evening. Can you talk us through what he said and uh, and what that might mean for the war? Yeah, so Biden obviously was in Ukraine on Monday and then went to Warsaw, which was a more scheduled stop that we did know about after a surprise visit to Kyiv. Um, it was a really massive speech and he was sort of continuing the rock star theme that we saw on Monday, very confident, very assertive. His at the best line from the speech, which is what we ended up doing a massive story on, was Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. Um, but lots of good quotes from his speech talking about there should be no doubt our support for Ukraine will never waver. NATO will not be divided and we will not tire. Kiev stands strong. Kiev stands proud. There is no sweeter word than freedom. You know, this was really Biden in full force showing Putin um, that the West is united on this war and it's not going to tire of it anytime soon and that we will continue to support Kiev in its battle to not be overtaken by Russia. And it's, it's significant. This is obviously a week where we're seeing world leaders really come out and make their positions known on this sort of key week of the anniversary. 
Putin with his massive rally, Biden with a surprise visit to Ukraine. And they're setting out their stalls, you know, they're saying no regrets and we're going to keep going harder and stronger. And I think that tells you a lot about the direction that this war is going to go and, and that it's not going away anytime soon. Well, thank you very much, uh, Vinish, for that. Uh, welcome, Colin. Um, we can see your honours as a speaker. I'll just before bringing in Colin, who I believe is in Kiev at the moment, uh, Dom Nichols, I know you have a few updates for us. Can you talk us through them? Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, so the update from from the ground in Ukraine, the only one to really focus on today is that something big went bang last night in Mariupol or the, the early hours of this morning in Mariupol, um, been held by Russia for months now, the scene of the Azovstal steel plant, that uh, that stout defence there. But something ha- something hit an ammo dump last night and it, it and it uh, it's made a very big bang on social media. Now, it's a long way away from any lines where uh, where Ukraine would be able to position something. And we're wondering, there's speculation whether or not this is the first evidence of the ground launch small diameter bombs, very long range and very accurate um, weapon that we that we know has been sent to Ukraine. GPS guided, about 80 kilometres range. So it could hit Mariupol if it was right on the edge of the of the where the fighting is at the moment, which would be a risk for Ukraine to put a, a, a highly prized asset like that so close to the front line. But if they are willing to do it, and um, and we've seen them take great risk before, then and of course if this is if this is what we think what we think it might be, then it shows that. Actually, they've they've got great reach here, and, and, and so it's one to watch. There maybe maybe will be more of that. But I thought that was uh, that was very interesting. I also just want to bring up to speed with a, a couple of things. I was in a brief yesterday with a Western official, as we said before, um, senior senior person or persons in the uh, defence and security establishment. But I won't I won't uh, divulge who, where, or. Um, uh, well, I told you the when it was yesterday, uh, but just a few bits and pieces from that I think were particularly interested. Casualties we've spoken about as we can, when we can. It, it's very, uh, it, it's very um, unclear about numbers on either side, and it is important. It's, it's not just sort of ghoulish speculation. Of course, it is. It is important to 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 understand what what the reality is on the ground. So, what we think this came from a Western official. That, uh, and they've suggested that Russia is su- suffering about a thousand casualties a day. Now, the recent figures we've been we were surprised a couple of weeks ago when the when the figures of sort of eight hundred a day were being produced. Well, that that is just incredible, and had to had to sort of check in. And yes, that was the number being put out by by Ukraine and then elsewhere. So, rest, Western official yesterday told me about about a thousand casualties a day. That's killed, wounded, missing. And taken prisoner, but you know, a thousand people off off the battlefield. That is an enormous amount, an enormous number of of people. Now, on the Ukrainian side, the official said Ukrainian casualties were quote on a level that would be unsustainable for many countries unquote, and a figure of at least a hundred thousand. Again, dead, wounded, missing, captured, a, hu- a huge number. Um, but the the, the about half what we think Russia has suffered. But inter- more importantly than that, I think, the dead to wounded ratio is significantly lower for Ukraine than Russia. Now, if you're defending, you generally take fewer casualties than if you're attacking. Att- attacking is a very risky risky business and defensive positions can be extremely hard to crack. So the, the defender generally has fewer casualties. But even so, 
the Rus- Russian casualties are thought to be 10 or 20 to 1, as in 10 or 20 wounded um, uh, for for one dead, as opposed to uh, Ukraine. With a, Sorry, I've got this completely around the wrong way. Ukraine is thought to be uh, 3 to 1. <laughs> I've got my, got my numbers all completely mixed up here. <laughs> Shall we, Dom, while you read these numbers again, should we go to Colin? Because I know he's, he's, in, he's in Ukraine and might not be able to stay for very long. Yeah, I'll take my socks off. All right. Thanks, Dom. Colin, I don't know if you can hear us. Um, if you can, would you like to tell us where you are roughly and uh, what stories you've been looking at? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just uh, in, in transit at the moment in a, uh, uh, in a minibus. Yes, m- maybe I can just add in on uh, what Dom was talking about there. My understanding is that... Uh, yeah, the, the the Ukrainian figures are around 100,000 casualties, but uh, with a, uh, a, a kind of mortality ratio of between 1 in 10 and 1 in 20, which means that uh, only between 1 in... Uh, um, uh, only between 1 in 20... In, uh, 1 in 10 and 1 in 20 of those people are actually dying... So I think if you extrapolate that out over 100,000, that would mean a total death rate of possibly about uh, between five and 10,000, which is a lot less than um, uh, the, 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 the Russian ratio, which is closer to three to one, um, and um, also a lot less than some of the figures we've otherwise seen bandied around for Ukrainian total deaths, which um, in some cases of uh, uh, people have been speculating that it may be roughly um, comparable to what the, the, the levels that the Russians have suffered, which uh, according to some estimates are anything up to about uh, 60,000 or so. Um, I hope that perhaps um, sort of sheds a bit of light on it. Well, that's certainly my tuppence worth on it. So Colin, where, where have you been and who have you been talking to? Well, I'm, I'm in Kiev at the moment. We've been here for about uh, five or six days, just doing a bit of general reporting. Um, uh, one of the stories we've been looking at, which we will be filing in the next couple of days, is a sort of year-on look at recruitment and asking the question, really, does Ukraine have enough um, uh, um, soldiers or manpower or people power, given this is a, uh, a unisex army, uh, does it have enough people power for the job? Um, and um, uh, obviously, we saw at the beginning of the, this time last year, lots of Ukrainians volunteering for the fight. People who had, uh, in many cases, never picked up again, uh, uh, picked up a gun before, um, and that effectively sort of doubled their fighting force from a sort of, you know, something like two hundred thousand people to around four hundred thousand people. Um, so what we're really trying to do is just get a sense of whether they need more volunteers for the fight, given the fairly high levels of attrition that we've just been talking about. And we've been uh, looking at recruitment campaigns and so on and so forth. And so just trying to get a fix on how things are going in that sense. And did you reach any conclusions there or are you still looking into it? Well, um, one of the things that they certainly are looking for new volunteers. Um, one of the... Uh, um, one of the main units here, the, the National Guard, which um, has about 100,000 uh, um, uh, soldiers in it, 
they normally do sort of like a, a gendarmerie uh, arrangement. Um, that, that's, what, that's what they're kind of comparable to during peacetime, but during wartime, they actually get involved um, as, as regular soldiers. Um, they have just launched a new recruitment campaign this month, um, for which they've had about, I think, between 20 and 40,000 people um, applying. So that does suggest that there are quite a lot of um, people who are still willing to fight. Um, in many cases, those are people who, you know, for personal circumstances, haven't got round to fighting yet, rather than people who've suddenly gone through some massive change of heart. Um, but it does suggest that there, you know, th- th- there is uh, still still some gas left in the tank here in, in that sense. That's fascinating. Um, earlier, Venetia Rainey talked to us about President Biden's speech in Warsaw, but you've been writing about uh, his trip to Kiev uh, and how he came in on the train and, and all of that. Uh, what did you make of it? What did you discover? Well, yes, we, we, we um, uh, I, I was actually in the uh, in, in the main Kiev government press center at the time of Mr. Biden's arrival. It gives you a sense of the levels of secrecy that were uh, that that uh, that, that uh, surrounded the visit, in that nobody in the press center had the slightest clue what was going on, uh, nor indeed did we. Uh, we suddenly noticed that there was a lot of traffic jams in the downtown area, which are not common at the moment because there's not that many people living in the in in the city at present. Um, and at first we thought it was a visiting delegation of Israeli politicians uh, who do tend to travel around with quite high security whenever they go abroad. Uh, we thought that it was them who had brought the city to a halt. It then became clear that this was no mere foreign delegation, and this, or no run-of-the-mill foreign delegation. This was something rather more important. And uh, I think uh, we, we found out it was President Biden within about um, half an hour of the traffic coming to a standstill. Uh, and then by that time, though, he had already gone. What he did was he, he turned up at St. Michael's Cathedral, which is one of the main um, churches in uh, the city centre, uh, and laid some flowers at a uh, war memorial um, along with President Zelensky. I think by the time myself and most other people in Kiev learned about it, though he'd already disappeared off the streets again. It was a very, very brief walkabout and uh, gave, then gave a, a kind of brief press conference to a few travelling White House press reporters who were with him, uh, again, all, all kind of behind closed doors. And then he was off again. I think the, the trip was three hours in total. Um, interestingly, it was... Um, he did not come in on Air Force One, which is his normal mode of transport, nor did he use the Beast, which is his big armoured limousine, uh, which he often travels around in as well. Um, instead, he came in, like many other world leaders have done, on the train, which is currently the considered to be really the only safe way for foreign dignitaries to um, visit Ukraine. This being because the, the airspace um, above Ukraine is, is not fully controlled by the Ukrainian military. It's contested airspace, you could describe it but uh, describe it as. And, and for a US president, that's relatively unusual to be traveling anywhere where the, uh, the airspace is not controlled 
by the US or one of its allies or where the president is not arriving with the express permission with the with, with, with the you know the tacit consent of uh, whoever's controlling that airspace so um that was the the essence of the trip it was it all conducted under complete secrecy though um, and apparently was several weeks in the planning, even senior White House staff uh, not being aware of it. Although um, for the average Kiev resident, I think the, uh, the the only thing they saw was a few large traffic jams down, downtown and then a, a few quick images on their, uh, on their TVs. Thanks, Colin. And can I ask, before we go back to Dom Nichols, uh, you've been in Kiev now for, I think it's about coming up to a week you're back there. What's your sense of the mood, the atmosphere uh, ahead of ahead of this Friday? Um, so, I've been here a few times um, in the last in the last year since the war started. Um, certainly, things are obviously a lot more relaxed than they were this time last year when it really did feel like World War Three was breaking out. There was a sense of fear on the streets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I would say now, certainly, people do remain convinced that the war is going their way but there's definitely a sense of fatigue coming in it doesn't mean to say that morale is dropping but um i I don't think the anniversary is going to be a time for a great deal of celebration per se um I, I, i always temper these sorts of comments by saying you know people present a certain face to the western media i suspect and they don't want to give the impression that everybody's completely fed up and can't bear to face another year of war but i i think definitely um this is a point where you know just sort of the 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 boost that everybody got um at the beginning when it, it turned out that they could fight the russians and 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 keep them at bay and that um this was not the invincible army that everybody said it was uh, I think that that euphoria is, is is clearly probably running a bit low now, and um, it, it's just become a new normal, which which a lot of people are kind of finding quite hard to cope with. But that doesn't mean to say they won't cope. Well, thank you very much, uh, Colin. It's really good to hear from you, and do stay safe um, while you're out there. Um, Tom, can I come back to you? You've got a few more important updates for us to digest. Yeah, sure. I've taken a deep breath. I'm ready to go back into battle with the numbers. Um, But essentially what we were talking about there with the casualties is that Russia are having a far higher uh, casualty rate in terms of people killed. And they're putting that down. Western officials are putting that down. Oh, Colin, I think you're still on. uh, You need to mute yourself, mate, as you're you're clambering out of the van. Um, Western officials saying that the Russian medical chain is just woefully inadequate. So if you are injured in the Russian army at the moment in Ukraine, you are you are far more likely to die than if you were injured in the Ukrainian army. So much much higher casualty rate with the Russians down to a poor medical chain. Now, it's thought to be it's it's woolly, of course, but um, Western officials thinking there could be up to 300,000 Russian troops in Ukraine. And they're saying that at least half the mobilized force, which they think was in the hundreds of thousands, at least 200,000, at least half that mobilized force was immediately sent to Ukraine. And we think that may well be that may well account for the huge casualties we've seen in the last few weeks because they are untrained. Um, poorly equipped, poorly led, and they are just, we've heard the, heard the expression human wave around um, Bakhmut in that area. Um, they, are, they, are not, they are not being employed correctly and they are paying a horrific price for it. Now, the rest of the mobilised force, which 
could be about 100, 150,000 people. That is said to be either in Russia or in Belarus training, but is being held as an operational reserve. Now, they've either had no training or absolutely minimal training. And that means effectively there is no reserve. Now, you've got to have, if you are an attacking force or a defending force, you've got to have a reserve. You need a reserve to exploit success or to plug a sudden hole that appears when the enemy breaks through. Or, you know, we all need a little fudge factor. We all need something in our back pocket to chuck at a problem or an opportunity as they appear. That's your operational reserve at every level. So, you know, a company of 100, 100 fighters should, should have a small reserve of maybe, you know, a section of eight eight people or, or something like that. A battalion of 500 should have a reserve of, of a platoon of 30, a brigade, a division. They should all, they should always be, the commander at any level should always be able to reach out and grab a reserve um, to, as I say, chuck at a problem or an opportunity. So if Russia does not have an operational reserve or it consists of extremely poorly trained, newly mobilised soldiers, they are not going anywhere fast and they could very easily go backwards if they are hit with a with a credible punch from from Ukraine. So I thought that was quite that was quite interesting. And that may also that, that may account for why we're seeing so little happening in the Donbass. The, the the lines aren't moving much. There is not there's not a huge amount of success there for them to reinforce, but equally they just haven't got the forces to do it. So moving on. Um this figure, Ben Wallace used the figure of ninety seven percent of the Russian army was deployed in Ukraine. He said that a couple of weeks ago and it caused all sorts of confusion because I mean that's a hell of a big number, 97%. So that was that was asked of Western official. And the answer came back that the 97% deployed meant that 97% of units in the Russian army have supplied something for the war. So either personnel, equipment, or they've provided training. So it's not 97% of the entire army in Ukraine, but it's 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 a whole, almost a whole of force effort in some capacity. Uh, and then just finally... There are, uh, as of yesterday, no signs that China is preparing to supply lethal aid. This was the this was a comment that came out of um, so Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the Munich Security Conference at the weekend. Said that that would be extremely um, serious if China sort of crossed that Rubicon. Um, but no, no, no suggestion China is preparing to supply lethal aid or has shown um, any interest in sustaining the war. So China at the moment is giving diplomatic cover, if you like. That we don't know of any any material or humanitarian support for Russia. Uh, but uh, at the moment, no, no suggestion they're doing anything more than that. The last point I want to make, and it came from the Munich Security Conference last, last weekend. There were discussions, or there are discussions ongoing, about a tank coalition to support Ukraine. This is sort of leopard, leopard tanks. I mean, the Americans said they'll send Abrams. Britain said we'll send Challenger 2. But Leopard is the is the name of the game. Germany, German produced Leopard in widespread surf, service around um, uh, Europe and uh, and the world. So there are many more Leopard variants uh, out there. So Finland's defence minister, Mikko Savola, he said that the this idea of a tank coalition had moved on, said there'd been intense talks between Germany and Poland and that Finland's participation in this Leopard initiative will be finalised in the next few days, i.e. well, this is these are the next few days. So hopefully we'll hear something soon. So what's happening here? So Germany and Poland are are leading this this emerging idea of a of a leopard coalition. They've expressed uh, an aim an aim to to quickly establish two Ukrainian tank battalions with thirty one leopard two tanks each. Now, Germany and Poland have promised fourteen tanks. Canada has promised four. Poland three. And Spain today has. Pro- I'm looking at breaking news here. Spain has said they are going to supply six. Um, Leopard 2 2A4s. They're 
Uh, Margarita Robles, the Defence Minister of Spain, said, we are repairing right now six Leopard 2A4 vehicles with the possibility, if needed, and if our allies request it, of increasing that number. Uh, and she said the tanks would be ready by late March, early April. So this is, you know, it's moving in the right direction. And Finland's, uh, Finland's Defence Minister, Mikko Savola, said that Finland would be able to supply both battalions. The idea is that, that one battalion would be the older 2A4 version. That's the most widespread version uh, around the world. Uh, 1990s vintage first first came in. And the other battalion would be the 2A6. So a more modern version uh, built or designed, built in the last 20 odd years. Um, it's got a, a slightly different gun, different turret armour. Um, they're both 120 mil smooth bore main armament, but there are there are a few a few bits and pieces. And the 2A6 is just a newer a newer variant. Now the European Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank, said that there is uh, they, they, a quote they put out an article recently saying there's a reason to suspect that some earlier proclamations of willingness about tanks were made only to pile pressure on the Germans. Uh, unquote. And that's an interesting point because a lot of people made good noises about supplying tanks. And now when it comes to actually putting numbers on that, um, well, some we're still waiting for numbers. As I said, Canada, Portugal, Germany, Poland, Spain have actually put numbers on their on their pledges. And, uh, you know, we're waiting for and hoping for others. But this is a long game, right? Tank production is a is a long game. The leopard production line at the moment is basically being kept alive by uh, an order from Hungary for 44 tanks. And um, it's highly likely that Norway is going to put uh, a bid for at least 50 of the new 2A7 version, the most modern version. Um, Czech Republic is also thinking that, that uh, is looking likely to, um, to, uh, to buy the 2A7. Germany are trying to upgrade their fleet to 2A7. They've already got 2A7 in service and they had earmarked 68 of the older 2A4s and 16 2A6s to be modernised for, for 2A7. But it now looks like that's going to be too costly. So there may be, those tanks might be up might be up for grabs. But the point is that these are, this is a, a big a big undertaking, the maintenance of these things. Where are you going to, do all that is it going to be in ukraine well i mean there will be certain elements of that but also it needs to be outside ukraine as well but possibly outside with a with a view to moving inside the country after the war as part of a long-term security guarantee but germany needs long promises if you buy a tank you're talking 20 years minimum to have it in service so these are big political decisions and you know we're not everyone when do you press print we're not quite at hover tanks yet but People are saying, oh, tanks are going to be obsolete in five years' time, or you've got to do this, got to do that. So it's a big political call to say, right, we are going to invest in these things, and we're going to have them in for 20-odd years. We'll up- upgrade the armour, we'll upgrade the sights and the weapons maybe, but but essentially um, the, the tank hull is going to be the same. That's the argument with Britain's Challenger 2 programme being upgraded to Challenger 3. might be a new turret, but the hull, when they go out of service, the hull will be about 60 years old. So, you know, this is a, this is a big, big, uh, a long-term commitment. And where's that money going to come from? You can't expect Germany to, to, to handle all that. Do you then look to the EU to produce these, uh, these factories all across Europe, sort of generating um, Leopard 2 production lines so that Ukraine has a long-term security guarantee? Does it come from the jointly chaired UK-Dutch International Fund for Ukraine that we've mentioned a number of times, some of the meetings I've been to? So there, there are big, big decisions to be taken here, but it looks as if there, are, there is the emerging... Or, or there will be two tank battalions for Ukraine in short order, and there are ideas being 
banded around now and worked on about what a long-term tank solution might look like. But if it's going to be around the, the Leopard, then Germany needs more orders for the 2A7, the new 2A7 version, to make it worthwhile to set these things up again in order to support or from which Ukraine will be supported over the longer term. So, Dom, just to be clear, you reported that the European think tank had sort of said, well, this is what it sounded like to my ears, that countries had said that they were willing to supply Ukraine with tanks in order to put pressure on the Germans, but they hadn't sort of checked whether they could send it. So when the Germans finally did turn around and say, well, we can, all right, then who who else is in? They had to sort of double back and make make sure they could. Is that is that roughly right? Yeah, it sounds as if there were there, there were a couple of things happening here. There was the political pressure. Uh, on Germany to say yes that they would export their own Leopard 2s and as the producer that they would give export permissions for those other countries, 14 countries in Europe, um, others around the world that use Leopard 2. They, they, have the, they would have to give permission for, the, for them to be gifted uh, as well. So there was, there was great need for political pressure to be applied to Germany. At the same time, Germany seemed to be looking to the US for leadership here Tanks were the latest in the is it provocative, is it escalatory kind of debate after air defence and high miles and, and all the rest of it. And that was why we think that the Biden administration eventually said, yeah, OK, we'll send 31 Abrams tanks. I mean, completely different different type of type of vehicle, a different supply and logistic chain, quite a needy vehicle, very capable. I mean, immense, immensely capable, but quite a needy little, quite a needy big beast. Same with Challenger 2. But it looked as if Germany was then waiting for American uh, America to take the first step, which they did. Germany then said, OK, we are prepared to send them and we will give the export licenses. And at that point, it seems as if the two parts, the politics and the actual art of the, the military industrial what is possible had kind of not gone in lockstep. So when the countries said, right, brilliant, we've got the permissions. What, what have we got? What can we send? They look around and it turns out that a lot of them are quite old, cranky, need refurbishment, need repairing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I mean, it's interesting that, that Spain are saying they're going to send six. They said today they're going to send six 2A4s, the older version, but after they've been refurbed, refurbed and repaired. And they said March, April, which isn't, isn't a huge amount of time, but um, you know, let, let's wait and see. So I think those countries who were looking to Germany to take the lead had, had either had allowed the two bits to, to get out of kilter. And we're now looking to those other countries. And Germany will be front and centre here, eyeballing these people saying, right, you, right, you fellas, um, you know, you, you've now got to put your tanks where your mouth is kind of thing. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the, in the, next, uh, the next few days. But I would, I would expect to see other leopard operating countries um, step up and, and offer something here. Thanks, Dom. Two things before we go to uh, a question from a listener, because we're going to have a slightly shorter live section of the podcast today. One thing is um, a listener. I'm so sorry, I forgot your name, but you did write in a few days ago um, with a video. um, This is in the UK, uh, taking your son down to going going along a country lane in the UK and then realising that the Ukrainians were, I think, training on the Challenger 2s or training on some sort of tank um, in the field um, next next to where they were. So they stopped and watched and waved and sort of wished them them all the best. So thank you so much for sending us that video. It was quite instructive to see actually what what does tank training look like. And secondly, Dom, just before we go to this listener's question... um, you described the Abrams as a big, as a as a big needy beast. Uh, ju- again, sort of dumb civilian question. But what do you mean? Do you mean in terms of uh, fuel, ammunition? Um, is is this? Can you take us into your army world there? Uh, yeah. So it, it's it's a different fuel system, different engine, and um, I mean it's a it's a wonderfully capable weapon of war, 
but it has its own niche supply line. I mean, they all they all generally do. All all weapon systems generally have their own supply line. There's very little commonality there is between variants. So the Leopard two A four to two A six to two A seven. Of course, there's some commonality. But for example, between Challenger one and Challenger two, there is only forty percent commonality, and it's likely to be a similar figure between Challenger two and Challenger three. So that introduces a whole host of of um, difficulties if you've got different fuels, different oils, different lubricants, different spare parts. You've got different instruments and tooling to work on those spare parts. So the Abrams is a is a is a wonderful vehicle, but it was just it was you know, compared to a sort of T seventy two, which is the the vehicle, the tank that is in um, most widespread service in Ukraine at the moment. Partly because of the ones they had and the ones that they were kindly gifted from Russia. I mean, the Abrams is—it's like it's landed from the moon. It's just a completely different order of of vehicles. So, you know, one of the reasons for the reluctance from the US to supply Abrams was because it—it's—I it, you know, shudder to say token force because it, it's a—you know—31 Abrams parked in your lawn is a problem for anybody. But you know, it's going to be—they're going to be brilliant initially, and then they'll. That as tanks do, they break down and, and, and need refurbing. They will be a low, much lower priority, I would imagine, because there just won't be the intricate and the niche logistic lines for those there um, as there would be for T72 variants and, and the leopards that are going in. So, so yeah, if, if it, a blank piece of paper and, a, and an unlimited bag of cash, you'd, you'd go for Abrams over, uh, over T72. But, you know, if you then have to build the whole thing from scratch it's being gifted gifted the the item is one thing but being able to support it and fight it not tomorrow not next week but in six months time i mean that is a massive massive undertaking and to try and do that for a for a a nature of equipment that's totally alien to every every sort of logistic chain you have existing and you are likely to develop in the near future then that's that's a big ask um so I, i would expect to see the abrams once or twice um but not not in routine service i would Venture. I think Le- Leopard and T seventy two is the is the the name of the game there. I mean, Ukraine has about five hundred T seventy twos that need uh, refurbing that have been damaged in the war so far or nicked from from Russia, so on and so forth. So the the answer, if you could if you could do it tomorrow, the answer to um, President Zelensky's I, I need a I need a tank division's worth of of equipment is refurb the ones you got. But of course, you're talking yeah, huge. Uh, warehousing, scaling, uh, maintenance pits, trained personnel who can do this sort of thing. So it's very, very difficult. And actually, if your problem, so that's a problem for the medium and long term. But if your short term problem is just give me some heavy metal right now, then saying, okay, well, in eight months time, I'll have refurbed 500 T72s. That ain't the answer. So there's there's a whole load of things happening here. It's really inefficient to have these lots of different tanks going there. But actually, as as we, the UK and others saw through Iraq and Afghanistan when we realized that we had the wrong kit the kit we had wasn't ideal for the for the environment we were fighting in you go through this this process we went through the process of what's called UOR urgent operational requirement when we just turn around to industry and we say just just sell us stuff we need that how much it costs right fine we'll, we'll, we'll have that that's fine it solves today's problem but none of the kit talks to each other they don't have the same radios they don't have the same commonality they don't work on the same fuel or what have you so that problem is put off for a later day when the when the wolf's at the door you, you deal with the you know well I'm mixing my metaphors here but you know you deal with the wolf closest to the sledge basically and and all those those questions about longer term sustainment that that has to necessarily 
be put off for another day. Um, and the, the, the demand right now is just to get the heavy metal out there. So that's why Abrams has come into the fold. But I, as I said, I think that was just used to unlock the, the leopards or set the leopards free, as they said. Thanks, Tom. Let's zoom out from tanks uh, just for one question from a listener. And I'm, go- I'm going to read this all out because I think the way they phrased it is quite interesting. And I think it'll give us, give Dom, well, not me, but give Dom a chance to sort of expound on some of, maybe maybe sort of colour in some of the aspects of, of the warfare we're seeing across um, the Donbass at the moment. So this is Josh writing in. Um, he's saying, we hear about fronts, territory, advances, lines, and it's easy to draw these things in abstract on a map with some squiggly lines and arrows. But practically speaking, these represent real people and equipment on the ground. How spread out are these? Presumably towns in their immediate surroundings have the heaviest concentration of troops and the roads connecting these towns, but what about the space between the towns and the roads? Take two towns 20 kilometres apart. Is is there a 20-kilometre line of trenches or outposts or emplacements between them? Are there gaps? Are there blind spots? Um, Does the real front line extend as far as humans there can see and shoot? Um... Is, is, it a, is it a line we can trace on a map, or is it just much more nebulous? I realise he's asking a lot of questions there, but Dom, I, I wondered if you could give your sense of to, 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 to our listeners of what we think the front line looks like, if you were to sort of give, give us a sort of um, mind's eye tour. Yeah, OK. Um, Josh, thanks for the question. And the very small and simple answer is, yes, it's, it's all of the things you've described there, but not in all of the places all of the time. So if we think about the First World War, the classic line of trenches stretching from the uh, from the Atlantic coast down to the sort of Swiss border. I mean, that is happening in some in some areas. There are trenches, holes in the ground with men and women living there for weeks at a time, being resupplied, fighting from those trenches, living and dying in those in those trenches. That is happening in some in some areas, not everywhere across the across the front. The Second World War, uh, the Norm, uh, Normandy landings, the Bocage, the the area just to the south of the Normandy landings, where the the uh, US Brits Canadians and the allies got absolutely well we were held up held up for a long time because the nature of the ground there was was very difficult for tanks a lot of small this is in the bocage in northern france a lot of small hamlets and villages that were all within a, a kilometer a couple of kilometers to each other which is the weapon range of the anti-tank weapons the germans had at the time so they were able to very easily put down a lattice work of um anti-tank areas that they could deny to to the allies without having to use trenches so it was very very difficult to move around in that area and try and take those small villages without getting whacked by german anti-tank rounds but there weren't trenches as we as we commonly expected them or understood them to be from the first world war so it's a mixture of all that the ground will dictate how best to defend it and how best to attack it so if you've got large open area you don't necessarily need to dig a big trench you just need a few radars that can look out over that and can spot any movement now if you spot movement you've got to then have something to make sure well is that um is that a civilian vehicle is it a tank is it a is it a person walking with a gun is it a deer you know all the rest of it so you you, you have to cover all these areas by observation you also have to cover them by fire there's absolutely no point at all in defending an area to your front or to the flanks covering it in 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 view so you can see there or either with your mark one eyeball or the or radar or something like that a drone what have you but if you can't bring fire down to bear there if you see a a tank an enemy tank column moving through there you know you can't do anything about it then that isn't that is not a well constructed defense so it depends on the on the ground and what is available to you where you can put your weapons in this case in that example artillery for example where you put your artillery that can cover that that gap now, if you can't 
cover everywhere on the front, then you might need to bring your lines back a bit. You might need to withdraw to an area that, that you've got you've got some artillery 10, 15 k's behind you that can cover your gaps as well as cover the gaps to your south and the gaps to your north in, in Matey Boy's sector. But, you know, so you might have to move your lines and the, the front line will settle down into what is the art of the possible dictated by the ground and dictated by your weapons and the coverage they can provide. So, yes, in certain areas there will be physical trenches. In other areas there will be a bit of the sort of lattice work of the bocage type anti-tank network um, and in other areas that the, the, the ground the, the sorry the front line might for for reasons that if you look at it from a map make no sense whatsoever but, but suddenly go backwards that might be because that's uh, that's all that can be covered by what few long-range artillery units you have and as you move your assets around if you want your um, long-range artillery to move from the from the north down to the south to to cover another another front down there. Then that might mean that the the other troops in the north might have to move back a bit or adjust their positions if they are no longer covered by this um, by this umbrella of indirect fire. So there's a whole number of reasons why the front lines are where they are, why they move seemingly without any enemy interference whatsoever. And what is possible, and the, and the skill of a military commander is to look at a piece of ground and see it in in defensive and offensive terms. So how are you going to assault that that position? And then once once you've assaulted it, how are you going to hold it? There's absolutely no point at all in breaking through the enemy lines, as we saw up in Kharkiv last last autumn when the Ukrainians broke through. They 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 went about sixty or seventy k's and were held on the, the line of the river. Name name escapes me of the river, but that was a natural defensive barrier. They could have carried on, probably. They might have been running out of fuel by then, but they could have could have replanned and, and carried on. But they might have overextended themselves because once you push too far, then you yourself are vulnerable from your flanks and you're in danger of being cut off and, and all the rest of it. So a military commander will look at the, a piece of ground and see what I can do with it, how far should I go, maybe I need to go backwards, maybe I need to need to be a bit more defensive here because I'm a, I'm a bit vulnerable, or I can't provide adequate support to my... To, to, to my um, neighbouring units north and south if I'm in this position. So there's all these considerations going on the whole time. And then, of course, the enemy gets a vote and they do the thing that you really haven't expected or you, you haven't haven't planned for or you've considered but you thought they'd, they'd be mad to do that. Well, guess what? They're mad. So they go and do something and catch you off guard. And you know, So it's always moving and you've always got to take into consideration these um, these, these variables which change by time, they change with weather, they change with political appetite, they change with um, military appetite for risk. So it's it's a constant melange of wrong answers. And that I think the idea is to be um, to be the least badly wrong in terms of a military commander. Earlier this week, Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and our Defence Editor Danny Sheridan had a conversation with Labour MP John Healy. Mr Healy is Labour's Shadow Secretary for Defence. And, in the event of a general election, if Labour won, would become the new Defence Secretary. Understanding his party's view on the Ukraine war is of huge importance. Here is their conversation. We're very lucky now to be joined by John Healy, Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. Mr Healy, welcome to The Telegraph, welcome to the podcast, great to have you here. Hello, thank you very much. First of all, how, how's the defence brief? What does it look like to you? Why were you attracted to that desk or did, were you just parachuted in? 
no, it, it's big. It couldn't be more important, especially at this time. And it is fundamental to the duty of any government uh, to keep the country safe, protect its citizens. And I recognise that. Keir Starmer recognises that, both having served in government. And we're determined to give people the confidence that when we come to an election, if they want a change of government, they would have in Labour a government that is strong enough, determined enough to do what's required to keep the country safe. It's too glib to ask you, is defence safe in Labour's hands? But what do you detect from the British public? When will you know that, that, you, that you are beyond that, that question? How will you know that you're... I, you're I, I take a lot of encouragement from the fact that over 500 of the new members that joined the Labour Party immediately after the conference in the autumn over those couple of months were from the forces. Uh, I take great comfort of the fact that people recognise now that Labour is a party that respects the armed forces and speaks up for them. We've been helping give voice to the concerns that many forces and forces families have about the quality of housing and accommodation, which has been a long-run sore that should have been fixed and hasn't over the last decade and more. So I, I, I take great comfort from that and... I draw the contrast with a really tough 2019 election when some of the hardest doors to knock on were those with Help for Hero stickers in the windows or Bridge Legion stickers. That's changed. But we have to demonstrate and earn that confidence and trust for the future. And, you know, one of the reasons that I was out last weekend at the big international music Munich security conference, Labour hadn't been there since the time when we were last in government, was to say, look, our commitment, our Labour commitment to UK national security, to NATO itself and to standing with Ukraine is totally unshakable. And Keir Starmer gave the same message directly to President Zelensky last week when he was in Kyiv. Now, we are due an election by January 25, very unlikely to have one in in that month or in the you know, run of Christmas. So we're probably looking at you know, autumn-ish next year so the starting gun's going to you know we've got probably what have we got a year or so until we're, we're into it you know hard so so the prospect of you being in power and leading the the ukraine policy is is very real so could i ask you that there seems to be a a divergent view at the moment in europe about about russia some uh, broad broadly the sort of you know french lead suggesting that we need to factor in a post-war russia into the security architecture that we're talking about today Others, Central and Eastern Europe, seem to be, look, Russia after the war is an irrelevance. We just build our own defence, we, we, we concentrate on ourselves, and then we just, just deal with whatever Russia is left. But trying to factor it in now gives them too much power and could, could be too murky for trying to set policy. I mean, where are you on that sort of that balance? Well, you're right, that is a, a very live debate. I take a couple of points of reflection from where things stand now. And in contrast to many who perhaps driven by wishful thinking, believe that somehow the Ukraine conflict's going to be over in the next few months. I think it's clear to me that the next government after the next election, whenever that is, will inherit the Ukraine conflict and will inherit that wider Russian aggression for the long term. Uh, the second is that one of the things that Keir Starmer and I have stressed repeatedly, and we said it to the Ukrainian ambassador when he made an historic address to the Parliamentary Labour Party last night, is that there may be a change of government at the next election, but there will be no change in Britain's resolve to 
confront Russian aggression, to pursue Putin for his war crimes and to stand with Ukraine. And that was a message that Keir Starmer gave to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people directly last week when he was in Kyiv. There does seem to be quite a lot of cross-party cooperation. Mm. Co- not coordination is too strong, but cooperation at the moment, I understand. Secretary of State briefs you regularly or includes you regularly in, in, in briefings. It seems as if there is a, a coherent sort of British response here. I mean, is that... How helpful is that? Are you, are you able to put down markers with your opposite numbers over in the States and across Europe, across the, the rest of the world? Or, or how much preparation are you able to do before any potential movement into power? Well, first of all, you're right. The steps the government has taken to provide military assistance to Ukraine and to reinforce our NATO allies, that they have had the fullest Labour support from the outset. And this time last year, just before the invasion, David Lammy and I were in Kyiv. We spoke to one of the former prime ministers of, of Ukraine who said Western unity is uh, Ukraine's best defence. And we were able to say then that there will be total unity in the UK in the face of any Russian aggression. And because we, we recognise that Putin is not just concerned with Ukraine... This is an attempt to redraw international boundaries by force. It rides roughshod over fundamental UN Charter um, obligations to respect sovereignty and territorial in- integrity. In fact, the very obligations that uh, Putin himself and Russia have signed up to in treaties with Ukraine. So we knew that this was not just a fight that Ukraine is uh, is 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 mounting to repel this Russian invasion. But this is an attempt to stand up for the same democratic values, a sense of international rules and order. And it matters. And it matters because Putin won't stop at Ukraine. And in terms of what happens next, our full efforts must be to give Ukraine the support and to equip them to drive the Russians back, resist resist the mounting Russian aggression, um, and then drive them back when they judge the times right, perhaps in the spring and the summer. Last one in Ukraine for me, if I may. Mm. The Russian land army has been broken in Ukraine, still got a very credible air force, air and missile force, very credible navy, especially the subsurface fleet. But the land army has been broken, land army being one of the biggest military threats to this country since the Second World War. Is there an opportunity now for Britain to take a 10-year, not capability holiday, but get rid of the challenger, do something with Ajax, but, but say, sorry, NATO, we're not, we're not there for the next few years, but in 10 years' time, we will be absolutely back on top. Because Challenger 3 would be fantastic today. In 10 years' time, when it's due to come in, it will be pretty good. So is there an opportunity now to say, let's take some risks? The, the first opportunity after the Second World War or are you just going to keep with the with the, the baked in the silted up equipment program in the in the MOD? No, I think the problem in the last ten years has been there's been that holiday has been taken and has been exposed by the Ukrainian invasion. I see Russia as far from a spent force. You're quite right about its air force, its nuclear capability, and its navy and and submarine fleet. If you talk to the Baltic nations or the Poles, as I do. They believe that Russia has the capability of regrouping its defence industries on 24-hour production. That isn't just to try and support the invasion of Ukraine, but it's clearly to replace their kit and their stockpiles. 
And even the Russian army will learn from this. So the idea that somehow the Russian army is broken, it's a spent force, we don't need to worry about it for a decade, I think is to take exactly the wrong lesson from this. And that's why I think the NATO plans over the next decade, the 300,000 strong high readiness force, the determination to return to a sense of deterrence and defence on its borders, I think is so important. And I want to see Britain secure as the leading European nation in NATO. I believe post-Ukraine, the NATO nations in Europe need to do more of the heavy lifting within NATO. So for me, the future over the next 10 years, Britain's commitment and strategy has got to be NATO first. We've got to fulfil our obligations to NATO in full. And there are growing questions, whether it's over our ability to field a full um, fighting division, the cuts in our sort of wedge-tail surveillance planes, or indeed at times when the threats are clearly increasing and NATO is stepping up its force readiness, we're still pursuing plans to cut the British Army by another 10,000 troops. Now, that makes no sense to me. I think those are the wrong calls. And what I really want to see in next month's new integrated review and spring budget is the government getting to grips with the big decisions that are required to keep Britain safe for the future, but also for Britain to continue to play the leading role and discharge our obligations in NATO. So it sounds like you are open to a, a conversation about cutting the army by another 10,000 down to, what, 72,500, I think that's for 72,500-ish. What about the reserves? Reserves are supposed to be 30,000 people ready, sat on the Bergens, can get out the door tomorrow. That's utterly fanciful, and we all know that. So the, 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 when the government says, oh, the, the British Army is 105,000, we know it's, it's, it's rubbish. So if you're open to a discussion on the 10,000, are you also open to a discussion about the reserves and actually are they, are they worth the... The, the poster and I know they're very good people I've served with them in Iraq and elsewhere I'm not having a go at the people I suggest the policy the government policy of, of saying yes these 30,000 are good to go is is wrong and needs addressing I see reserves as a vital part of the picture of our armed forces but it's the full-time forces that count most I'm not open to a discussion about the cuts to 10,000 and for more than a year I've been arguing that the government's plans in the face of increasing threats identified nearly two years ago of course by the integrated review at that time must be halted so that there can be a rethink over the approach that we take. And you would halt that decision to cut 10,000? Yes, and we've, uh, Keir Starmer's called for that. I've called for that. We've been doing that for well over a year. It just is, it, it runs contrary to the government's observation, quite rightly, that the threats are increasing and diversifying, that the Britain faces. And at a time now, post-Ukraine, or post-Ukraine invasion, when NATO is stepping up its capabilities and its readiness and reinforcing its defensive lines, then Britain appears to be going in exactly the opposite direction. And you have to say, look, 25 other NATO nations have since the invasion nearly a year ago rebooted their defence plans, rebooted their defence budgets. Britain's done neither. It has the opportunity next month in the new integrated review and the spring budget to do both. And that's, that's going to be a big test of this government. Is it capable of making those decisions that will secure our future and our future security as a nation and our role in NATO? Or is it too concerned with the week-to-week -week survival to face up to those big decisions and it fudges both? Last one for me. In terms of defence philosophy, how much of the defence budget do you think should be a, a spend-in-Britain type pool for, for equipment and, and all the, that leads to in the, in the British sort of economy? For example, I mean, 
fleet solid support ships. Yeah, I'm going to get the numbers all wrong, but if, for the money available, if we could get three from South Korea, 1.6 billion. Thank you. That's what. That's why you're over there. But you know, if it's three or three or four from South Korea, two building in the UK. So in terms of value for money for the taxpayer, that might be better in the UK. But in terms of the combat capability that it gives to the military, you know, for many many things, it's better to go overseas. Where where, where do you see the MOD budget? Yeah, my, my first principle and Labour's commitment will be to direct British taxpayers' money first to British companies and British jobs. First, that reinforces our UK economy, but secondly, it strengthens our UK sovereignty. And it makes no sense to me to be blind to the benefits to Britain of investment in, in the UK. Some projects are clearly complex, big, require that sort of international collaboration. There will be occasions when... The best of what we need is not made, can't be made in Britain. But there should be a higher bar for buying abroad. And for too long, we've had competition is king, price overrules everything. And the fleet solid support ships, the three support ships to our British Navy, which were first announced more than six years ago, really could and should be built fully in Britain. It's a huge, wasted, missed opportunity. Even if it means fewer hulls? For the... I mean, that might be a bad example because we're only dealing with three. But generally, if, if, if it buying in Britain means a, a fewer, a lower quantity of the, of the thing you're trying to buy, you'd still be content Do you know, one of, the, one of the tough things about doing the defence job in opposition is that you simply don't have access to the classified and commercial information that allows you to make those calls. But we had a 100% British consortium bidding for the contract. They knew the price. They knew what was required. There is no reason why those three ships shouldn't now be built fully in Britain, in UK yards, by British labour, bringing the benefits to our economy, but also the reinforced strength of our own industry to provide for ourselves in a really critical area and capability. And if Labour had been in government, we would have made that decision. We'd be building them in Britain. Can I ask you that question again in 18 months, if you happen to be in power? You certainly can. Thank you. By that time, I'll have had a look at the contract and whether there's any review. I'll have a look at the contract and what ministers are blithely saying now will be 60% plus of the ship, all three ships built in Britain, whether there is any legal and contractual requirement for that work share to be in Britain. We have none of that information. They've stonewalled any attempts by the Defence Select Committee to get that basic information. So I... I, I feel very strongly that this is selling the pass on Britain and failing the basic test of public accountability. Okay. Interesting philosophy. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, John. So it's Danny Asher, Defence Editor at The Telegraph. Um, you and I were both at the Munich Security Conference. A big theme was fighter jets, sending fighter jets to Ukraine now. If you were in government, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I, the... Discussion about fighter jets, it's clear the Ukrainians really want the F-16s. We don't have F-16s. And for me, the whole approach of the allied nations like Britain supporting Ukraine is about the coordination and each country doing as much as it can. So we don't have the jets they want, but we've rightly offered to train fast jet combat pilots. So that's Britain making a significant contribution now. And I understand why the Defence Secretary, who is certainly having a look at it, uh, as we're told, um, 
is saying in public, look, it'll be months, if not years, before Britain may be in a position to consider actually giving jets to Ukraine. So that's where I, I, I'm, I'm happy to sit alongside him on that. What I don't want is the debate about jets to distract from the immediate urgent need that Ukraine has for trained fighters and the kit that the, the, and the weapon systems they need to be able to push the Russians back in a spring or early summer offensive. And that's, that's where I think the debate, it's where the public interest should lie, and that's what I'd want to see the, uh, the government giving most attention. But when you've got the president of Ukraine literally pleading with our government to provide wings, how can you not have that as the main point of discussion? Because he, he, needs, he needs the weapon systems, he needs the support, he needs the trained troops in the next few months to be able to push the Russians back when the weather allows him to do that and when they're ready. Uh, the fighter jets is a medium to long-term challenge. Uh, we can contribute, we can continue to play a leading role in coordinating the contributions of others, just as we have as part of the response to this crisis from Britain. That, that's what we should be concentrating on. Do you fear such a move would be antagonistic or escalatory towards the Russians? I think the, the important one feature of the Western unity and the Western coordination has been, I think, at each step, there has been a reasonable calculation of the consequences and the potential escalation. And I think the Western allies have actually factored that intelligently into the support that we've been able to give to Ukraine. The risk of escalation, of course, um, and the responsibility for any escalation will lie with Putin. But it's important now we give Ukraine everything they need to defend their and take back the territory that Russia has brutally and illegally seized since the 24th of February last year. So we have a spring budget coming up. There's apparently a row between the Treasury and the MOD over whether or not they're going to get an increase in defence spending in line with inflation. I suspect, in fact, I, I have written that you are, of the, you are of the thinking that we should be increasing defence spending. But as a Labour Party, party of, of the working person, you know, how, do, how does one square putting a load of more money into the defence budget when NHS workers can't even get a pay the, the financial situation Britain faces now is really serious mm. and it's made worse because the current government last in the autumn crashed the economy, sent inflation soaring and uh, the pound, pound plummeting. So that has squeezed defence budgets even more fiercely as threats are increasing. These are the really tough decisions any government will face and does face. And I'd simply say, really, you know, Labour will always spend what's required on defence. What's required is what is based on the assessment of the threats that you face. Just as a reminder to some of your listeners, of mm. course, in Labour's last year in government in 2010, Britain was spending 2.5% of our GDP, our gross national income, on defence. Now, that's a level that's never been close to being matched in any of the 13 years since. And currently, you know, Britain is bumping along at about 2.1% of GDP, just above that NATO NATO target level. 
Does it concern you when you read that Estonia is going to push their defence spending up to 3%, Poland's announced it's going to double it to 4% of GDP? These are much smaller nations than us. Does it concern you that we are not along that trajectory? Estonia this year is playing a remarkable role for a small country. More than 1% of its entire GDP is this year being given in military aid to Ukraine. It's not just Estonia and Poland, it's Latvia and Lithuania, Mm -hmm. for instance, all of whom will be spending this year 3% of their GDP on defence. And we've seen really big commitments, historic commitments and shifts in Germany and big commitments also from President Macron of France. It's part of this picture, which I mentioned earlier, 25 NATO nations in the last year since Putin invaded Ukraine, have already rebooted their defence planning and their defence spending. We're yet to do either. And whilst the crisis response that Britain has made to the Ukraine invasion has been strong and sound, there is a, a void in government vision about what next. And there has been a strategic inertia within government and ministers over being able to rethink international and defence, international and domestic defence and security planning. And that's what's required in the new integrated review next month alongside the spring budget. So my last question then, nicely taken into the integrated review refresh. You believe it was wrong to slash troops by 10,000. Would you like to see that reversed? And if so, to what figure would you a Labour government be happy with, how many troops would be a sustainable, not even sustainable, a a, a solid figure for the British armed forces? I don't think you can fix those figures in opposition. You can't fix those figures without knowing what the threats are, what the state of our own forces are, what the capabilities of potential enemies and adversaries are. There were some strengths in the government's last integrated review. We're right to aim to be a science and technology superpower by 2030. They were right to identify Russia as the most acute threat, but the sort of gung-ho, go-it-alone Britain in the world tilt towards the Indo-Pacific distracted us from that. We're failing to meet some of our NATO obligations. So I want to see in the new integrated review, first of all, a very clear recommitment to NATO first and fulfilling our obligations in full. And if Labour got into power, we'd do a NATO test in our first 100 days. When Boris Johnson took defence and security off the negotiating table in the Brexit negotiation, the government has now left a Europe-shaped hole in our security strategy. So we've got to rebuild relationships with the European Union, greater cooperation on defence and security, possibly a formal pact. We've certainly got to rebuild relationships with uh, some important ally nations like Germany uh, and, and France. And finally, on the troop numbers... The the third big flaw for me in the integrated review was the mismatch between the um, ambitions in the integrated review and then the defence plans in the uh, defence white paper. So a boast that Britain would pursue persistent global engagement in the integrated review was set alongside a defence plan which sees a cut of 10,000 full-time troops in the army, a scrapping entirely of the Hercules planes and a dropping down of the Challenger tanks to 148 Now, these are the troops that are reinforcing our NATO allies on the border of Russia. These are the planes that led the airlift out of Kabul. And, um, you know, these are the the tanks that we're donating to 
Ukraine. So that mismatch and those flaws in defence planning need to be fixed. But you didn't answer my question about how many troops would you... Yeah, no, I did. I, at the very outset... Give me a figure. No, at the very outset, I said to you, you it, in opposition, we have, don't have access to any of the information to make those detailed mm. judgments. You can't fix a firm figure. Frustrating <laughs> as it is to you, frustrating as it is to me too. Understood. I know you've got to dash off, but I, I, can't, I can't let it lie. What's the NATO test? Or have you just answered it there saying we, we're going down to too few tanks? And the Indo-Pacific seems to be an indulgence that we can ill afford. No, the NATO test is a review of the major programmes within the first 100 days to um, satisfy ourselves or find out the extent of the shortfall that our commitments to NATO entail. So are they meeting? Are are we set to meet what we promised? Are the capabilities that we're looking to provide to NATO going to mean a real increase in the defence and security capacity of NATO? But you've said the government already are failing in some areas of NATO. So you're, you're anticipating there'll be holes in this NATO test. So you're already setting yourself yes, I up am. for Look, in, I'm, increased I'm re- capital I'm spend. reflecting the sort of doubts and questions that everyone from US generals to some of our own forces and uh, allied nations are voicing. So I, I, I know that we're not fully meeting our obligations. We're set to fall short. If Labour got into government, I want to know what the nature and extent of that shortfall is, where the capability gaps are, where the finance gaps are, where perhaps we are committed to capabilities that aren't, aren't producing the reinforced defence the, for the period ahead that perhaps NATO needs. So that's why I'm saying we need a NATO test. It needs to be done immediately as a 100-day priority because we can see and we hear from others the concerns that are being raised. One to pick up later if you indeed. get into power. John Healy, Shadow Secretary of State for Defence, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.